The sermon text for this morning is John chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, or 1 through 18, as we continue our study through the Gospel of John. We studied this passage last Sunday, and last Sunday we specifically focused on the healing of the disabled man in the story. This morning we are going to consider the response of the religious leaders to the situation. Why were they so angry about what Jesus did? And what can we learn about the importance of rightly understanding God's command and design for the Sabbath day? That's what I want us to explore this morning in our passage, John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. We read, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who was there, who had been an invalid for 38 years, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews, that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. There are a lot of important details in this passage that really drive home the wonder and the awe of this miracle that Jesus healed this disabled man. We learn in this text that the man had been severely disabled for 38 years. And so for the better part of his life, this was his daily reality. He struggled greatly in a society that had no desire to support him or to care for him. We learn, for example, that he did not have people in his life to care for him. In verse 7, he tells Jesus, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. And so not only was he severely disabled and alone, but even his hope, we see, was misplaced. He wanted to get into the water because, like some others in Jerusalem, 
He believed that when the water of this pool was stirred up, that the first one in would be healed. You may notice in your English translation, it does not include verse 4, which has in many translations been moved to the footnotes. That verse has been moved to the footnotes to indicate simply that it's missing from the earliest and the best manuscripts that we have of John's gospel. And so therefore, this was likely a superstition that had arisen in Jesus' day to explain the movement of the spring waters in that pool. And so we're meant to see this pitiful and sad uh, condition of the man at the pool, the sad condition of his life. He was severely disabled in a society that had no desire to care for or to support him. He was alone. No one was willing to help him. And the hope that he had was a false hope because he was clinging to a superstition. Now, this man's physical condition is a picture of our spiritual condition outside of Christ. His physical condition is a picture of our spiritual condition outside of Christ. The Bible often uses language of physical suffering and inability to picture our souls as we are fallen in sin. We know that the fall in sin, as it's recorded in Genesis chapter 3, it brought about in our world not just things like crime and murder and conflict and similar evils that we see today, but it also affected all aspects of God's creation, including our bodies. And so, as humans, sin not only affects our morality, our choices, and, and those things that we have when we you know, have conflicts with other people, those, those troubles and difficulties, but sin affects every aspect of our being. There is no corner of our being that is not touched by sin in some way. And so it's not that people who are sick and disabled are being punished for some particular sin that they committed, but that all of humanity, all of creation is suffering and groaning under the weight of sin and its consequences. And so when the Lord Jesus healed this man, the Lord Jesus was demonstrating what he will do for all those who repent of their sins and who put their faith in him. He reveals here that by trusting in him, Christ will not only heal our physical disabilities and diseases by giving us resurrected, glorified bodies on that last day, the day of his second coming, but he will also heal the destruction that sin has caused in our souls. It's, it's the reality that we will be a new creation, not just within, but also without. And so by healing him, our Lord demonstrated his sovereign power to restore what sin had destroyed, ultimately pointing to the blessings of regeneration that the Spirit accomplishes in our hearts as he unites us to the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving benefits, and also the uh, work of raising us unto new life on that last day so that we might enter the world to come with our Savior. We see that Jesus did all this by his sovereign power. He did it immediately. Jesus simply said to that man in verse 8, Get up, 
take up your bed and walk. And we read in verse 9 that at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. But then in the second half of verse 9, we read, now that day was the Sabbath. These words, they introduce the issues raised by the religious leaders as we now consider our first point, which is that a wrong understanding of the Sabbath is spiritually dangerous. We read in verses 9 through 10, Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews, this is referring to the Jewish religious leaders, said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now we see that the religious leaders immediately focused in on what they perceived was a problem. They didn't rejoice with the man about his healing. They didn't inquire about, hey, how did you go from being disabled for 38 years to now standing in front of us, holding your mat as it is there rolled up at your side? How is that possible? How did this miracle come about? See, instead that their focus was immediately on what they perceived as a sin, that he was carrying the bed mat that he used to lay on as a disabled person. Now, why did they focus so much on this one thing? And it's because the religious leaders believed that obeying God's law earned them God's favor. See, they had a works righteousness understanding of salvation. So in their religion, there was no room for grace. Their focus instead was on trying to obey God's laws as closely as possible so that they could merit eternal life. We know that they might have been able to fool the people around them to believing that they were righteous, but they were not able to fool the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus saw right through their hypocrisy and pointed out that their hearts were far from God. Yes, outwardly, they were religious. They were even the religious leaders that were very honored and revered in Jesus' day. But inwardly, their hearts were far from God. What they were doing ultimately did not please the Lord. In fact, Jesus said very clearly to the religious leaders in Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 through 28, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. What a picture. He continues and says, So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And so when they saw this man walking with his mat, this man who was now probably drawing some attention from those people around him because of the healing, they immediately pointed out that he was breaking the law because he was carrying his mat on the Sabbath, which was then a Saturday. It's important, loved ones, for us to see that by, by picking up his mat and carrying it, though, that man was not breaking God's law. He was not breaking God's law. The fourth commandment, which we read this morning from Exodus chapter 20, states, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. So we see in this command of God that this man was not breaking it. Instead, what the religious leaders were accusing him, they were accusing him of breaking their own man-made rules and man-made regulations that they, as religious leaders, had added to God's law. See, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, and, and before that, during the intertestamental period, they were so serious about keeping God's law that they developed a practice of what was known as building a fence around the law. This was their way of being sure not to break any of the laws in the Old Testament, the books that we know as the Old Testament. And so what they did is they summarized all the laws that they found in the Old Testament, and they began to expand them, to add to them, adding additional laws that will, would keep them from breaking those original laws of God. And the problem was, not only were they doing this, but they were expecting others to also observe their man-made regulations and their man-made commandments. And so, you know, it's important to, to see that, yeah, they had good intentions in what they were doing, but that doesn't mean that they were right in what they were doing. Because by adding laws to God's word, what they were doing was needlessly burdening themselves and others. They were weighing people down, and instead of being a delight, God's word, God's law became burdensome, joyless, and ultimately repressive. See, rather than seeking to love God and love their neighbors, the religious leaders had become so law-focused that they lost the original intent of God's law. One commentator writes that the religious leaders developed an elaborate set of rules ultimately designated to ensure that they didn't break the Sabbath law. And since the fourth commandment prohibits working, what they did is they defined 39 categories of activities that constitute work, spelling out the details of each. This is like lawyers trying to figure out the meaning of words, right? And they had these elaborate categories of the meaning of work and what its uh, intention was in God's intention was in the uh, commandment of the Sabbath. For example, they did not allow uh, a person to do repair work on the Sabbath, and so they extrapolated this out to say that it was forbidden to wear your artificial teeth, lest uh, if they fall out, you would be breaking the Sabbath by picking them up and putting them back in. Um, one could also not transact business, and so it was also forbidden to borrow anything from your neighbor because they had expanded that category out so widely that they said even borrowing from your neighbor is forbidden. These man-made laws also forbade carrying anything on the Sabbath. And so this man whom Jesus had healed broke their law by carrying his mat. Imagine the fear in uh, his eyes when, after seeing the healing, the Sabbath police descended on him. It's understandable that he then referred them to Jesus because he didn't know who Jesus was. He simply said, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. This is why in another gospel, when 
the Lord Jesus had a similar run-in with the religious leaders about a Sabbath issue, we see that he there concluded that issue and that controversy by saying that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Even there, he wasn't challenging the Sabbath law found in the Ten Commandments, but he was challenging rather the religious leaders' man-made laws that confused God's original intention in the Fourth Commandment. And, and in our text this morning, Jesus explains why he is Lord of the Sabbath. We read in verses 17 through 18 of John chapter 5 that Jesus answered, My father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why they were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, Jesus argues here that in the same way that God, Yahweh, the covenant Lord of Israel, in the same way that Yahweh works continuously in the world through his providence and his sustaining power, which all of the religious leaders would have agreed to. Yes, that's theologically correct. Jesus says that he is also, he himself is also working continuously to accomplish our salvation. He wasn't necessarily working with a hammer and chisel. Jesus is referring to his own work. But he was instead actively doing the Father's will throughout his life. He was living a life of obedience to God's law. He was working continuously to accomplish our salvation. And loved ones, praise God for that. That there was never a moment in Jesus' life where he was outside of the Father's will or where he was being disobedient to God's commands. But every moment of every day of his life was spent doing what was necessary for our salvation. And that's why Jesus says that my Father is working until now and I am working. And with these words, the religious leaders understood him as equating himself with God. But notice that Jesus didn't claim to take the place of God or to be an alternative to God, which is what the religious leaders meant when they accused him of making himself equal with God. What Jesus intended was, he was saying that he was sent from God to accomplish the work of salvation. See, that he was the divine son of God who was the word made flesh. That in the beginning, he was with God and he was God. Now, the religious leaders, we know, were spiritually blind to Jesus' glory. And they were also wrong in their understanding of God's law. See, loved ones, what we see here in, in John chapter 5 and, and throughout the Gospels is that the religious leaders' wrong understanding of the Sabbath led to their spiritual ruin. It led to their spiritual ruin because they emphasized what was restricted on the Sabbath, and, and they added to God's law to make it even more restrictive. They completely missed the point, the intention of, of God's Sabbath law. And sometimes as Christians, we can fall into the same kind of danger. And when we read the fourth commandment, and really when we read all of God's commandments, but especially the fourth one, as it's emphasized in this text in John chapter 5, we can see these laws of God as a way of making our lives more difficult, as, as God's way of 
robbing us of our fun, of putting a burden upon us. And loved ones, that's not what God teaches us in his word. And that's not God's design behind his commandments and especially behind this fourth commandment. But what we see instead in scripture is that a right understanding of the Sabbath leads to joy in this life. And it also helps us understand our future glory with Christ. These are our second and third points this morning, and I, I want to take them together because I want us to see very clearly how one flows into the other. That a right understanding of the Sabbath leads to joy in this life, here and now, in the present moment. And it also helps us understand our future glory with Christ, that glory that we are all awaiting. The Sabbath, what we need to understand, loved ones, the Sabbath is God's gift to us. And our Sabbath observance must continue until Christ returns. Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He was emphasizing that the Sabbath is a gift from God to man. It's God's gift to us for spiritual and for physical refreshment. In fact, Sabbath means rest or cessation from work. It's a special day that God has given us. It's a gift to us, as we said. And so when we say things like, you know, I don't need to observe the Sabbath because that's just an Old Testament thing, loved ones were wrong in that kind of thinking. The Sabbath, yes, did begin in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, that's true, but it carries over into the New Testament, into the New Covenant as well. We see that God instituted the Sabbath in creation. as We read this morning from Genesis chapter 2 where he rested after he finished his work of creation. This makes the Sabbath as much a part of creation as it does uh, as marriage is a part of creation. So we see it there in Genesis 2, and then God included the Sabbath in his moral law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments. So in Exodus, it's the first place where we see the Ten Commandments listed, the Sabbath is tied to creation. And notice, I'm going to read the fourth commandment from Exodus chapter 20. And notice how when God gives this commandment, he ties it into Genesis chapter 2, into his work of creation and rest. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, when the Bible says that God rested, it doesn't mean that he went on vacation or that he took a nap and he stopped his providential care over his creation. But loved ones, the picture here instead is that after having made and ordered and subdued the creation according to his perfect desired plan, God's control was so absolute, his sovereignty so unquestioned that God then, like a king, enthroned himself without opposition. 
His reign is one of rest, that is, of absolute supremacy and sovereignty, so much so that he exerts his rule from that position of rest as he is observing and acting in his created order. This is the kind of rest possible, loved ones, to a God who can say of himself in Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 10, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. Complete sovereignty over his work, reflected in his rest and in his enthronement. But then, when the Ten Commandments are repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5, notice that the Sabbath is tied to Israel's redemption out of Egypt when God freed them from slavery under Pharaoh. So in Exodus, the Sabbath is tied to God's work of creation. Now, in uh, the book of Deuteronomy, as Moses is addressing the second generation that's entering the promised land of the second generation of Israelites, the Sabbath is tied to Israel's redemption out of Egypt when God freed them from slavery under Pharaoh. We might say that in Exodus chapter 20, it's tied to creation. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, it's now tied to God's recreation of his special people of Israel We read in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant, or your ox or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And loved ones, see, this is where we see that the Sabbath rest is not just a matter of the external rest of our bodies, but it's also emphasizing the internal rest of our souls, emphasizing that we receive and rest in Christ's work of redemption. See, as Israel was commanded to use the Sabbath day to remember how God freed them from slavery out of Egypt, As Moses was there that day addressing the second generation of Israelites now entering the promised land. Loved ones, in the same way, we are to spend the Sabbath day remembering how Christ has freed us from our slavery to Satan, sin, and death. And by taking time during the week, but especially on the Lord's Day as we gather for worship to Remember that Christ has accomplished our salvation. He has freed us from Satan's sin and death. You know, taking the time to think on that, to meditate on it, to pray about it, that is what creates lasting joy in our hearts. That is what stirs up assurance and refreshment 
and it sustains us in this wilderness of sin. In fact, this is why we celebrate the Sabbath on Sunday and, and not Saturday, because Christ's resurrection occurred on Sunday. We're told in Acts that the apostles met together on the Lord's Day, which was the Christian Sabbath. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 20, section 7, explains it this way. As it is the law of nature that in general, a proper proportion of time ought to be set apart for the worship of God, so God in his word, by a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, has specifically appointed one day and seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy to him. From the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, the appointed Sabbath was the last day of the week. Beginning with the resurrection of Christ, the Sabbath was changed to the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day, a day to be continued until the end of the age as the Christian Sabbath. And God promises us that when we obey him in this, loved ones, when we observe the Lord's day according to his commandment, that we will be spiritually refreshed and, and he will be glorified through our worship and our obedience of him. How is it then that the Sabbath refreshes us spiritually? How does God accomplish that in, in our souls? Well, God says specifically that we're to keep it holy. That, that is, we're to make it different from other days by directing our time and our attention to God and his blessings, specifically his blessings to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. The clearest statement in the Bible of how the Lord's Day is kept holy is found in Isaiah chapter 58, verses 13 and 14. Isaiah chapter 58, verses 13 and 14. It's a portion of uh, Isaiah's prophecy that looks to the new covenant age after the coming of Christ. There we read, If you call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, loved ones, this tells us that on the Lord's day, our lives should be free from worldly pursuits so that we may engage wholly in the worship and in the enjoyment of God. This is what brings that spiritual refreshment that the Lord Jesus emphasizes. Pastor Richard Phillips gives us a helpful summary here of Isaiah 58. He notes first that we should... Uh, not do our normal work. That's what Isaiah emphasizes. We're not to go our own ways. Now, this shouldn't spur in us you know, a pharisaical list of rules that, hey, let's compile something that will teach us what to do and what not to do on the Sabbath. Rather, on the Lord's Day, we should refrain from work that we normally do. For example, Consider finishing the laundry on Saturday, finishing homework on Saturday, students, which can be very, very difficult, especially if you have an exam on Monday. Make your business calls on Saturday. 
instead of on the Lord's Day. You know, in our age today, it's becoming more and more difficult because as you know, our work is encroaching more and more into our home life through emails and through the opportunities to work at home, um, making that distinction between, no, this is a day that I am to serve the Lord and to worship him alone and to set aside my normal routines, that, that can be difficult and that's something that we need to think through. You know, sometimes people would, might object to this saying, I won't have time to get everything done if I take Sunday off. But, you know, this is the kind of thinking that ultimately characterizes those who don't trust that God is our Heavenly Father who will provide everything according to uh, our needs and according to his wisdom. And there are, you know, we need to say there are instances in which uh, work is necessary on the Lord's Day, uh, such as emergency situations or those who work in jobs that require them to work on Sunday. Now, these are works of mercy and necessity. But on the whole, most of us can and should refrain from whatever work we normally do on the Lord's Day. Second, Isaiah says we are to refrain from seeking our own pleasure on the Lord's Day. Now, this is probably... The, the main thing that many of us struggle with on the Lord's Day, doing our own pleasure rather than making God our pleasure. But Isaiah's teaching means that we should devote ourselves to spiritual pleasures and abstain from worldly ones. See, God wants us to set one day apart, prioritizing worship, fellowship, singing, devotional reading, and works of mercy. Isaiah thirdly says, that we should refrain from talking idly. By this, he means that one day a week we should focus on talking about eternal matters and spiritual truths, focusing less on talking about things like sports and politics. The Westminster Confession of Faith echoes this very clearly in chapter 20, section 8. It says, The Sabbath is then kept holy to the Lord when men after due preparation of their hearts and arranging of their common affairs beforehand, not only observe a holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts concerning their everyday occupations and recreations, but also devote, devote the whole time to the public and private exercises of God's worship and to the duties of necessity and mercy. And the confession there emphasizes a really important aspect of successfully observing the Lord's Day. And that involves us preparing for it, giving it thought in advance. You know, we send out an email on Saturdays that has a link in it with more information about our Lord's Day worship service. And I want to encourage you to take the time when you receive that email to click on that link so that when you arrive for worship on Sunday morning, your heart and my heart, we are prepared to meet the living God and we are informed about how we are going to encounter him in worship. See, rather than a burden, loved ones, when we observe the Lord's Day according to God's instruction, it's a blessing in this life. It's a blessing. But it also is God's way of preparing us for the life to come. 
Because a right understanding of the Sabbath helps us understand our future glory with Christ. You know, the Sabbath day reminds us that in principle, yes, we have rest even now. That even at this moment, we have rest in Christ and his righteousness alone for our salvation. In him, loved ones, today, at this very moment, we have freedom from slavery to Satan, sin, and death. The sin no longer has dominion over us. That though some sin remains, no sin reigns in our hearts and in our minds. And so in Christ today, we have joy and assurance and salvation. And we see this in our own hearts, in our own uh, uh, desires for God and the ways in which God is, is drawing us to himself and, and making us more holy through the process of sanctification and the work of his spirit in our lives. We see this in our own fellowship as we gather for worship and we, we talk about spiritual things and we build one another up. We see this, this presence of Christ here and now in the sacraments, and baptism, and, and the Lord's Supper, in which the Lord Jesus reminds us that we are washed, we are cleansed, we are new creations. But we are also directed on the Lord's Day to look forward to our eternal rest, the eternal Sabbath that is to come. We re- read in uh, the third stanza of the opening hymn of our worship service this morning, there says, your earthly Sabbaths, Lord, we love, but there's a nobler rest above. To that our laboring souls aspire with ardent hope and strong desire. We have all of these things, loved ones, that are pointing us to that eternal communion that we will have with him in glory. So this day, loved ones, this day is the day that the Lord has made And it's a day that is a foretaste of heaven. Let us therefore rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sovereign work of your spirit in our hearts, for effectually calling us to yourself. We know that if you left it up to us to decide and to show enough willpower to follow after Christ, that we never would have come. Were it not for your sovereign grace, our hearts would have remained hard or choked by the cares and worries of this world. And so we thank you, Lord, for softening our hearts, for implanting your word there, and for granting growth by your Spirit. Lord, work in us continually so that we will grow spiritually to love you more and to love one another as Christ loves his church and to seek to live in obedience to all of your commands. We thank you for this Lord's Day, this one day in seven in which you have called us to rest in Christ's accomplished work and to focus on worship and thanksgiving. Lord, we all acknowledge that this is the day that you have made. Help us to rejoice and to be glad in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.